This episode is brought to you by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds have been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over 100 years and is now proudly servicing the Northern Territory too. Their early weaner product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young weaners and has been developed with their high fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au. You're listening to the Central Station Podcast where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. When I grow up, I want to be a veterinarian, said almost every kid ever. Campbell Cosy Costello didn't think he had what it took to get into veterinary medicine, but life has a funny way of working out. In just over a decade, Cozzy has built a career which sees him treating animals across the world. In this episode, he shares the pivotal moments that took him down the path of becoming a nomadic vet, sharing stories of some unbelievable adventures, and discusses what his future looks like. To start our episode, I of course asked Cozzy what he was like as a child. Oh, what was I like as a child? Um, well, yeah, my parents could probably give you quite an uh, illustrious uh, description there. Um, pretty active, um, didn't want to sit still. Um, you know, as soon as school, the year at home, mum wanted to keep me back a year because I didn't want to learn shapes. I didn't want to sit down and do boring trigeotomy. Yeah, I'm not even pronouncing that right. Uh, you know, geometry, stuff like this. Um yeah, I wanted to be building stuff for my Lego, um, out making stockyards in the sand pit out of sticks and, and balls of yarn, uh, you know, out playing on my push bike or with my horses or doing lick runs with dads. So, um, yeah, it was sort of, you know, a, a typical station bush kid upbringing that um, there's plenty of stimulus, there was plenty of development for cognitive skills, you know, you always had your little pocket knife, you know, your little old-timer, your pony or your push bike and, you know, forever creating and exploring and, you know, learning not what to do and what not to do. It was, you know, it was quite a privileged privileged childhood to be fair. Uh, but, yeah, animals and, and exploring were a big part of it all all that journey. And when you were little, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Oh, well, when I was proper little, you know, through grade three and four, obsessed with astronauts and NASA, you know, like that was the early 90s and um, – there was a lot of investment in um in, in space and NASA at that time, plus Lego had put out a, a limited edition of space Lego, so I was like pretty keen on that. Uh yeah, I, I was just like, I want to be in aviation and, and an astronaut, you know. These guys are these guys are badass. Um, you know, getting sp- spun into space. 
I was pretty obsessed with trains, Thomas the Tank, train Lego as well. I uh, know we had cattle on adjustment um, in central Queensland. Uh, home was near Charters Towers. Uh, but, yeah, whenever we used to travel down there to look at cattle on adjustment, there'd be a punch-up in the back between my brother and I on who got to sit in the seat in the car closest to the railway line. Like, yeah, just just obsessed. Just loved it. Um, so, yeah, I was thinking about a train driver. But sort of as time went on, you know, you sort of go through that awkward adolescent period where you're a bit like, oh, geez, you know, I'm dealing with puberty. I don't know what the hell I want to do. Um, girls, yeah, girls. Yeah, well, and then I went down to an all-boys boarding school, uh, Nudgy and Brizzy. Um, so, you know, that was sort of cut out the equation, at least during school hours. Um, but, yeah, then, uh, you know, sort of school finished and, and I, I took a year off uh, working on the stations uh, with my family. Um, I went and travelled uh, through Europe uh, for two months, uh, slept on stations, uh, sorry, slept on trains, uh, throughout Europe and uh, got back into Australia on my 18th birthday. The first legal alcoholic beverage I ever bought was a uh, 26 hour, uh, sorry, 40 ounce bottle of rum in Brisbane, duty free. So <laughs> the cliche Queenslander right there. Um, but yeah, w- worked there, but you're sort of getting to that place where what am I going to do? I, I deferred a Bachelor of Science at uni. Um, there were some great um, apprenticeships and trades uh, on offer in the mines. Uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, helicopter pilot or fixed wing pilot. Veterinary science was in the back there. Um, but, yeah, I just, I just never thought I'd be, you know, um, smart enough or academic enough to, you know, pull off a Bachelor of Veterinary Science. And I applied at James Cook University. Uh, they were looking for bush kids to address the shortage uh, of vets in the bush. And... Um, yeah, weirdly enough, it fitted the bill and I found myself studying in the first ever uh, cohort of undergraduate veterinary medicine in Townsville at James Cook University. So did you have the marks when you left school to get into vet science because or vet med? Because I understand that I know I didn't have the marks to get into vet um, and it's harder to get into vet off, more often than not than it is into human medicine. Correct, yep. Um, <clears throat> and I know a lot of people will go and do another degree, say like animal science, and in their third mm. or fourth year they can kind of transfer across. But even then they spend year 12 or year 11 and 12 at school just working their ass off with that goal, being like I've got to get this crazy high score in my exam so I can get into vet. But it sounds like that wasn't your year 12 experience. No, like – um yeah, you know, there was a multitude of things swirling around. Um, you know, it's just like, look, uh, I've got subjects that I liked. I really did well at agricultural science at uh, Anaji. Um, I was runner-up ducks for that. I ducked uh, multi-strand science at uh, at Nudgy. Um Yeah, like I, I enjoyed literature and English. Uh, but, yeah, it wasn't – well, you know, I just <sighs> – guess where I'd come from, you know, aspiring to be a vet, like they were, they were the rock stars, you know, they were the smart kids. I'm not, not good enough for that. Like, you know, uh, I think you and I have spoke many times, uh, things in life find you and I think my path in veterinary science, I've cursed it a lot, um, but it, it found me for a reason and and, and I, I didn't get the score to get into Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane, not by a long chance. Um, but you know, when I did my interview for James Cook University in Townsville and, and put my submission in, just nailed it. They were like, you were exactly, you know, what we were looking for. And weirdly enough, uh, one of the ladies that sat on the, um, the board that sort of drafted and 
pardon the pun, vetted the, the applications for the veterinary. She was like, we remember your application coming across our desk. And it stood out, you know, oh, here's a kid off a station that wants to go into regional veterinary work, um, you know, and it understood the struggles and, you know, by living in postcodes it struggled to uh, attract, you know, doctors, dentists, pharmacists, vets, skilled persons um, out there. And, you know, the fact that I even addressed that in my, um, uh, in my application, that was a massive standout. Is that standard practice? So say like when I wanted well, – when I wanted – when I did go to uni, so in year 12 we just had um, – I think you'd go online and you could pick your preferences and I think I had like – Oh, I had zoology first and then ag science and the night before they closed, I switched them, which is how I ended up in yep. ag science. But you yep. just, on a computer, basically put in your preferences and then you'd get a letter in the mail later on. Like you didn't have to apply. It was just your name and your score. Or even then they probably didn't even say your name. It was just your score. Did you get in? Did you not? Yep. Is it standard in vet, like for vet students across Australia to have interviews and kind of write applications and stuff? Or is it just like you get the marks and you get in? Because the experience that you just recounted feels very American, I suppose. Like I know in, in America, like you, mm-hmm. to get into college, like you have to write a submission or at least for certain college, like for the bulk of the colleges and have interviews sometimes and mm-hmm. all that line of stuff. Yeah, I think it is very similar to your experience with veterinary science. And I think that was the problem that these unis were seeing was, you know, um, were seeing was, um, you know, these really bright kids are just going, Oh, well, I got the top mark and vet sounds great. Boom. I throw it in. And, you know, without actually going, Oh, yeah, I'm actually going to take these skills, you know, to a regional area or, or practice at all, you know, because the veterinary, the veterinary shortage was happening. You know, I started my journey, uh, into the veterinary world 17 years ago. We were chatting about these dramas back then. So, um, I guess James Cook University, um, it's not standard practice. No, but they were sort of going like, well, we're going to skin the pig another way because the original, you know, model wasn't, wasn't working. So as I said, you know, they were thinking about, um, running the first year of veterinary um, science the year prior, but that was the year of my gap year. And they put it back 12 months and that just happened to be the year that I applied. So, you know, as I said, in, in, in reflection, um, yeah, you couldn't write that. Like the, the ducks just lined up and, uh, you know, I, uh, there was a, there was a cohort and a, and a, an institution that was looking at addressing the problem in a sort of a roundabout, you know, a non, uh, conforming way that the other veteran colleges were operating. And, um, I think the algorithm really worked for several years. Definitely. You know, like James Cook University has, um, long, um, shone in the veterinary science world for producing fantastic graduates for urban and regional Australia. Yeah. They, they just kicked it out of bounds. So I think because they changed that, they, they really got it right there for a long while. Thinking outside the box. Yeah. I think it's a great idea though, because there's so much more to being a vet or to being any, any profession you want to be than just the score to get in. Like imagine 100%. if you, I always think about this with people that want to be doctors. Like imagine if you get, um, you know, spend all that time studying, get the marks and then get to uni, get to your first, you know, like prac where you've got a cadaver or something or yep. another or a real human, like an alive human. And you're just like, like this is not for me. Um, I did a certificate two in vet nursing in year 11 mm-hmm. and there was an option to keep going in year 12 and I ended up dropping out because I was like, I don't want to be a vet nurse because like it wasn't for me. Mm. And I was like, but I want to do what the vet's doing. Mm. Um, but imagine like getting to have that taste of things beforehand. I just think that's so, you know, and, and imagine if they had um, interviewed you and, well, they know like it's one of the, what is it, one of the trademarks, the three, what they call it, like the triad of 
serial killers and one of them is like torturing animals. Imagine if like you just let something slip. They're like, nope, this guy, nope, we don't want him in our course. Like, <laughs> That's a weird. They'd be like, oh, that's great. Yeah. We're a peculiar mob. But- <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, but- yeah, I've been dissecting animals my whole life. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we're just going to call the cops. Yeah. Like- <laughs> no, I'm doing bush killers. Yeah. No, cutting up steaks. No, look, um, I've definitely seen where – you know, just focusing on academic uh, selection process, it's important. But, you know, I remember uh, when I practised as a new graduate vet many years ago uh, down in Victoria, um, you know, and maybe I'm throwing shade at the, the Melbourne uh, cohorts and, and the Southerners, but you know, that's what we do in the North, right? You know, got got to throw shit at them. Um, you know, we'd get we'd get these kids out on farm and, you know, they'd look at it. You'd be like, right, mate, there's a sick dairy cow. You can do the the um, history, you know, talk to the farmer and find out, you know, what's going on and we'll piece a, a puzzle, you know, start that process, you know, and, and you know, your normal sort of layman terms and, and yarning as a, you know, farmer to farmer. Uh, oh, has your, cow, has your cow been chewing its cud, you know? Has it been having a feed, stuff like that? Um, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, it has been on, oh, no, you know, been off a tucker proper, you know, like this cow's been sick. You get these kids to be like, oh, has your cow been masticating recently? And, you know, old mate would be like, the bloody hell you say to me, boy? Like, <laughs> you what? Yeah, masticate. Yeah, yeah, like chewing, cow chewing, doesn't have chewing, opposable chewing. thumbs, thank God. Yeah, 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 you know, the whole masturbate, masticate uh, conundrum had happened and you just sort of watch right from the start. You're just like, oh, mate, you're blowing it. So, you know, I, I definitely uh, had a lot of privilege being a new graduate, which is an incredibly tough time as you transition from a confident student um, to, you know, well, the, bu- the buck stops to you, you know, as a, as a very vulnerable uh, new graduate. It was very stressful, but I had a lot of privilege being male, bigger guy, and definitely coming, you know, off a station originally, you know, definitely, you know, these farms look at you as young fellow and be like, oh, yeah, so where are you from? I was like, oh, you know, up north, charter stairs off a, you know, off a place. And there's almost a bit of understanding. So it's, it's just really, you know, understanding the cultural faux pas and, you know, things to do and not to do and, you know, uh, things like that. It, it definitely, yeah, it definitely helped. Out of all the courses that you do within a vet science degree or a vet med degree, um, is there any courses on like people management or communication or anything like that, or is it all very much in the medicine? Um, I think it's something that the more contemporary courses uh, have started addressing, you know, like the communication aspect. And, and even now they're starting to brush up on, uh, you know, business management skills and things like this because, you know, we, we graduate as vets as brilliant um, surgeons and medicine specialists and consultants but we've got to run it, you know, if we ascend up the ranks from associate to, to a business, you know, a partner, you, you know, you've got to be a business owner. So, you know, and there's no Medicare in the veterinary sense. So yeah, you've got to, you know, not make emotional decisions and make objective ones, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that's been thrown in the mix, but there definitely was, I think it's something that, uh, you know, James Cook University, when I went through, did really well. Um, at that time we used to do, um, uh, what was it? Uh, PPD, um, workshops, professional and personal development. So yeah, we used to do Meyer Briggs tests and find out different personalities and, you know, sort of address that not only just for your client vet interactions, but, you know, into workplace ones as well. Cause, you know, us human beings, we're all supercomputers and, uh, and so different. And, um, yeah, the inefficiencies or breakdown in communication or, or loss of money. Yeah. can just come because there's just two personality types that totally bunt heads. Yeah, it's. I just find that incredible because thinking about it, there's so much that a vet can do. But and yes, your patient is the animal, but 
everything is hinged on trust, really. Trust and credibility, I guess. Trust, credibility and authority. And your credibility and authority is already more or less established because of the degree and the qualifications. But if a owner or a client doesn't mm. trust you, um, they may not let you do all the things you want to do or that you're recommending. They may not trust. They go, yep, okay. It's like that. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care kind of thing. And I think if I came up against it, well, I, if I saw a vet and I knew, yeah, they have all these things on the wall and they're very good, but they're being a bit of an asshole, that's probably when I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll make an appointment and then I'll go book in with another one for a second yeah. opinion because you just you – knowing someone loves you the wrong way. Manner. But you may actually be right on the money, but you've just not got the bedside manner for it. So – um, right. um, yeah, and, and it's definitely something in Western culture in Australia. Like, it's interesting, you know, working with the Japanese, for example, they're like, we want to see your business card and all the credentials and they look at the thing and the letters and the yada yada and they're like, okay, this person is. But, you know, in Western culture, yeah, it's a bit like, well, who are you? Um, and, and just the communication as well, like, you know, just really, you know, I might blurt out, um, you know, what I think is a watered-down version of the medicine uh, involved in the and, – and you've got to be, you know, you've got to be intuitive to go, this person has no idea what I'm talking about or we've missed the money or I've said something. And, yeah, I reckon, you know, the last sort of several years of my, my degree is, yeah, you know, everyone goes, uh, oh, you're so lucky being a vet, you only deal with animals. No. Nah. 80% of it's human interaction and the last several, several years is, you know, just refining those sound bites that send home the message you're trying to uh, communicate uh, well home um, and, and finding even better ways to, to get it across because, yeah, you know, like at the end of the day, we're trying to give a, a product that isn't funded by state or federal funding so it comes from private investment, you know, it comes from the client's back pocket and disposable income. So, you know, you've just got to word it and present it and, you know, make people not feel guilty if they can't afford it. You know, that's okay as well. Well, you know, where is your goalpost and yeah. what do you want to achieve? And, you know, like as a vet, I can, I can offer a, a variety of services. If you want the Maserati of, of surgeries, you know, all the bells and whistles and leather seats, I can, I can provide that. But I understand that everyone in the car market isn't looking for a Maserati. If they want a busted old cruiser to do the ball run, well, we can offer that as well. Oh, you know, I feel like a busted old cruiser is still pretty up there near the Maserati. Exactly, maybe it's reliable. A, gets maybe the job a Hyundai done. XL or something you mean, or a Corolla, because like Land Cruiser, even as busted us as they may be, that's still a pretty pricey car. Yeah, oh, well, true. Maybe we'll go like a. Great <laughs> I don't know ball if I could afford like anyone's ball running yet. <laughs> yeah, true, true. But you know, just something reliable. You know, something the job's done, but you know, it just doesn't have. To, you know, reverse parking yeah. cameras and, and leather seats, you know. So, and I think sometimes maybe that's where, uh, you know, vets can run askew. And it's, you know, it's my opinion. I may have several colleagues listening now that like, I disagree with that. But I think if you box people in a corner and go, you know, oh, I'm going to spay an animal for this price, you know, yes, it is so good to have blood work before you do surgery on your animal. It's so good to have IV fluids going in there. It's really great to have all the bells and whistles. But, you know, if I'm out in the middle of uh, the territory or, or the desert or, you know, I'm in a demographic that just can't afford that or there is a bit of a recession or there is something that's changing, you know, you're just like, look, I can get the job done, but it's not going to have all that kind of stuff, you know. Just like that old ball car, it's a great car, you know, it's going to be reliable, but, you know, the outside door door handles don't work. You've got to <laughs> climb in the driver's side and open it up that side, you know. Like it just it is what it is. It's So what was your first job out of uni then? Uh well my first job out of uni, um hell of a transition. Um so I left sunny North Queensland, um 
you know, Brahmin cattle and cattle stations I went down to, the western districts of Victoria, um, a small town called Cobden. Uh, it's about 40, 45 minutes uh, uh, east of Warrnambool in western Victoria. Um, population, I think it was something like 1,700 between Camperdown and the uh, 12 Apostles, actually. Dairy country, uh, cold, wet, just rained and, you know, ice and just miserable, really. Um, the Victorians loved it, but yeah, I thought it was pretty, pretty ordinary. Uh, the autumns were nice. Uh, the summers were dry and warm, but the, the winters were just excruciating. Like, you know, you'd have days that never got above five and it was gloomy and could probably see why the palms enjoyed migrating over and, and going there going, Oh, uh, this is quite a clement looking day uh, compared <laughs> to London. Um, so yeah, no, I practiced there for, uh, for 18 months. Um, I then relocated to the other side of Victoria to a small town called Kuwirup, uh, which is the asparagus cat, uh, capital of Australia. Uh, once again, doing dairy medicine and a bit more horse work over there. So I was trying to pick a bit of horses up. And during that time, I rode in the infamous, uh, Mongol Derby. So I rode a horse across Mongolia. Okay. I was wondering how this all fit in. Mm. Um, that there we go. So you are one of the Mongol Derby alumni. So that is that from memory, it's a thousand kilometer horseback race. Yeah. Yeah. Ballpark a thousand kilometers as a, as the crow flies. Um, it's a recreation of Genghis Khan's, uh, old messaging route. Uh, so, you know, obviously if you had to send a letter or a message to armies or, or their old postal system that had to cover a thousand kilometers, well, if you did it on one horse, one yarn, I mean, it'd be pretty clapped out by, you know, halfway through and it was a slow process. So they used to have their, their little tents or yurts stationed about 35 kilometres apart and they'd have a set of ponies at each one and they'd, they'd, you know, soot the horse from point A to B, change the horse, go to the next one, change the horse. So they were able to travel at considerable speed and distance, but the horse only had to do a little sprint. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, the um, experience was recreated in the Mongol Derby. Uh, I rode in the, God, what was it, the third or fourth one ever held in 2012. So it's one of the younger riders that did it. Uh, 35 started and I was one of 14 that finished. So, wow. Yeah, the attrition back then was, was pretty, you know, it was pretty wild. It, it, it's really grown into a fantastic event, uh, really efficient um, but you know, like anything, as it progresses, it always loses a little bit of its cowboy flair and and rough and tumbles. So, um, yeah, but, but that was a you know, it was an interesting time where, you know, I left North Queensland to go to Victoria for my career. Uh, you know, behind any story, you know, there's sometimes a girl. You know, I've been seeing a girl all through uni. Um, you know, we dated for six years. She was a vet as well, and we sort of parted ways. And I was sort of like, well, you know, I've been I've been stuck in Townsville for five years. You know, I'm in this job. I've broken up with this girl. You know, like I want to discover myself and what I can do, and you know, sort of carve out my own journey. Uh, you know, my own my own sort of story. Uh, so I thought signing up to the world's longest horse race would be a great way to do it. And that sort of that was a massive. That was a big thing in my. You know, if you look at milestone moments, you know, as a twenty, twenty four, twenty five year old to do something and building confidence and you know, kicking off a life of of traveling and being a gypsy and nomadic. Um, I'd have to say that one's pretty significant. Yeah. You know, to be able to finish that and go, well, shit, 60% of the other riders didn't finish. I did. Um, you know, confidence and not cocky, but just like, yeah, wow, my constitution as a human being is, you know, is great. What, what a great achievement. You know, the guy that won the race, like I came, I think 12th or 13th. I can't remember. There's only, you know, several hours between us, but 
it didn't really matter. The guy that won it, he just got a you know busted ass bridle and a pat on the back and good on you. And you know us were given a busted ass bridle and a pat on the back too for finishing because <laughs> like half the other mob that all you know snap legs and bones and Ooh. one bloke broke his neck. He's fine though, um, or just pulled out because they got trashed or or, or tired. Um, yeah, it was yeah, it was a pretty big thing to go like you know well you know you can't skite about it too much, but you know for, for um. Yeah, for confidence in yourself, you're like, wow, what a great thing to to start and complete. So, was it the Mongol Derby that sort of started this whole um, international streak in your career? Because you have worked all over the world as a vet. Um, I'm thinking, growing up on a station, you have a very stable, you know, upbringing. Um, you know location then you go and yes you worked at two different places down in victoria but again quite stable and i feel like for a lot of people uh when they go and get a job like they'll go and stay there for a little while or for a lot sorry a long time like you know you might especially as a vet though if you're trying to learn extra skills or specialize in different things you may move around a little bit to try and find those mentors and get those extra learning opportunities but um Compared to, I'm going to use the quotation marks, air, air marks, um, like a regular vet, like you've had a very different path. Yeah, no, I've been really privileged to, you know, definitely walk and fly the the path less travelled. Um, yeah, the Mongol Derby was a massive catalyst for that. You know, that sort of kicked it off because, you know, I remember, you know, as I said, you sort of come off this. They call it the 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 post derby blues. We looked at our statistics over the next couple of years because, you know, thankfully I was able to go back and not only vet the Mongol Derby, but I used to go back there a couple of months prior and select all the horses. So we'd go and select 1,500 ponies, you know, for the, the event every year. And it was great going back and being involved at, uh, with all that data, you know. like We looked at it, you know, something like 60 80% of people after the Derby, you know, quit a long-term job, a relationship. You know, it's kind of like there's a bit of an awakening. Yeah, you have the post-derby blues. You're like, oh, you know, what's what's next? You know, that was amazing. That sort of, you know, uh, made you feel alive. It's sort of like getting struck with, by lightning and unfortunately may plant a seed of seeking further, you know, um, dysfunction um, or, or, or chasing the next thrill. You know, it's kind of like a skydiver. I've jumped down the plane, my parachute opened, my feet have touched the ground. I can't wait to get in the next plane. Um, but, yeah, that was definitely a big, you know, I remember after the derby, Going back to Australia, uh, to, um, you know, the Gippsland, uh, area of Victoria and, you know, putting in paperwork for some client that, you know, really didn't give a shit and sitting at a, you know, at a desk doing that and then out, you know, doing some surgery and doing the same stuff and, uh, you know, doing lame cows in the mud. And I was like, man, this is, this is what people do their entire life. And I've sort of had a taste of something different. I, I'd need that again. Um, you know, and, that, and that's where it all began. So I soon found myself signing up to be a vet in an expedition through the Wakhan Corridor in Afghanistan. So you know, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we did a we did a month long uh, expedition walk through the Wakhan uh, in Afghanistan in 2013. So what's the Wakhan Corridor? The Wakhan Corridor is like a, a cul-de-sac area uh, of uh, of Afghanistan that separates Tajikistan to the north and Pakistan to the south. And right at the end of the sack is. Uh, of the, of the blind sack of the Wakhan is, is China. Why is that there? Um, you know, during the Elizabethan and, uh, Tsar, you know, the, the Russian Tsar empires, um, they, uh, they were, you know, they were war, you know, like the, the, the Brits and the Russians were, were having tiffs. 
It's the whole reason Alaska got bored off the Russians by the Americans, but that's another story. Seaward's folly, you know. As I said, I'll I'll, I'll continue finding little uh, rabbit uh, rabbit warrants to run down. So, you know, uh, so what what does the world do? They go, well, we're going to extend Afghanistan up in this little area, and we're going to split you two guys apart and and stop your tiffing. Didn't really work well. Like they still, you know, having little fights up there in the in the mountainous areas of uh, of Afghan and Central Asia. So anyway. Um, yeah, we went through there, and uh, so I flew. I found myself uh, booking a, ret- uh, a, a return ticket to Dushanbe, the capital city of Tajikistan. Uh, we landed there, got some four-wheel drives, drove two and a half days across um, some of the worst highways, but beautiful. The Pamir High, the infamous highway through the the mountains between Tajikistan and Afghanistan along the border. Um, it was the old highway that the Soviets built when they invaded Afghanistan in the 80s. Um, yeah, it didn't go well for them. The Russians is kind of the, the, the joke, you know. Even though the Cold War was in full swing and the Americans and the Russians hate each other, at least they could kind of catch up and go, huh, Vietnam's not going very well. How's your Afghanistan? Not well either. You know, it's something we could bond over in, in a sickening way. So, you know, that, that, uh, one of the most spectacular highways that we drove along, some of the worst food poisoning I think I've ever had. Um, I remember just getting so ill in Tajikistan and just lying in this citrus field and just, I'd crawled on my hands and knees out of my hammock. Oh, for what felt like for ages, and just, just remember just collapsing under a citrus tree and just vomiting and just being so sick. Um, you know, and just lying there like semi comatose in the, in the dirt and these ants like biting my face and the remnants of vomit <laughs> off the side of my face. And I just going, Oh my God, I feel horrible. Um, and then yeah, hearing the, the call for prayer light up, you know, calling everyone to play, at the, uh, pray at the local mosque in, in Afghanistan and just the tranquility of it. And I was just like, Oh God, I, I think I'm going to live, you know, listening to this gentleman sing. So then we, yeah, we walked across the border. Into Afghanistan, and uh, we met our um, team of donkeys and camels. And yeah, we hiked up through the Wakhan for three and a half weeks. Uh, saw snow leopards, which we thought were extinct. Um, so there, we bumped into a National Geographic uh, mob that had been up there documenting that, and some of the biologists. So yeah, the Afghans were really, really excited to you know we're just sitting there having a dari, and they're like, oh, you know, I got called Kazim rather than Kazi. Kazim, 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 come look. You know, there's some snow leopards and cubs. You know, we got the binoculars out and had a look there and, um, yeah, it was great for weight loss. I think I lost about 12 kilos over about a month there, um, being at an altitude and in a blizzard, yeah, some of the coldest weather I think I've ever experienced. Played a lot more of that headless goat polo stuff, the Buskashi over there and just realized why I don't think a Western country will ever win a war in these, in these postcodes. Like, you know, some hard, rugged country and, um, yeah, just some hard, rugged people, you know, that don't have much and, you know, like they push their goats up there on foot droving, you know, for, for months up at altitude, just, you know, jumping up steep gradients and, you know, think nothing of it, you know, and that's the kind of uh, conditions that commandos and special forces, like, train their entire career to try and, and do it. So it was – I had a very sobering moment when I was in Afghan. I remember we had pinned down in this little, like, mud hut – in the middle of a blizzard and, um, yeah, the sort of, it was like something out of Star Wars, the door sort of busts open and all this snow is pouring in through the door and this sort of gloomy silhouette of a person emerges in the door frame. They shut the door behind them and it's a man and his donkey. And, um, anyway, starts unloading the donkey and we just thought there was stuff on the back, but anyway, it turns out his little daughter was on the back, sort of seven or eight, really, really, really young. And they'd heard that there was white people. There was a doctor, you know, aka a vet. 
around and had, you know, ridden through this blizzard for a day to see us. His options were medical attention. Kabul was seven days uh, walk away or to come and see us. So he, he braved the, the blizzard and came and saw us. And anyway, pulls a sort of sheet off this girl and, um, they'd been cooking in their little house, their little village and, um, boiling oil. And, uh, she'd run past, hit the saucepan, poured all this boiling hot oil all down her chest and arm and leg and like, like just the smell of it, the look of it. Yeah, they were bad burns and like she could feel, she was in, ex, you know, extraordinary pain in some areas and other areas she couldn't feel. So I was like, well, the place is you can't feel. That's third degree burns. You've burnt the edge of your, ner- your nerves off. And the other places, you know, it sounds like second to first degree burns. So I was like, man, we've got pretty limited stuff. I can give you some, some, some drugs, but. You know, you need you need medical attention. I can't give you all of them in case we get sick. You know, so I was like, here's some antibiotics. You know, here's some pain relief, but you're going to have to be reasonably conservative with those because there was paracetamol in it, and children's livers, you know, uh, metabolize paracetamol in a different way. So you can really, you know, make them sick. And I was like, man, this this girl's going to die of infection or fluid loss, you know, from this and. Anyway, the guy couldn't have been, you know, more gracious and uh, he was just like, oh, thank you so much. You've done everything you can. And I was like, I think your daughter's going to die, you know, and I'm 25, 26, you know, looking at this guy that's, you know, kissing the feet that, I, you know, the, the ground I walk and I'm like, mate, like I've done nothing. I've sort of put off the inevitable. And anyway, the next day off they rode and I have no idea if that girl lived or died. I would have no idea at all. Um, but, yeah, sort of. You know, I think that was at a young age a massive sort of experience to have to go like, you know, and I've found it troublesome sometimes when I'm in a, in a consult as a vet or just, you know, walking the streets in Australia and someone's complaining about something or some brat kid's throwing a fit and I'll never forget that girl that didn't complain about anything. Or, you know, someone's like, oh, I've had to wait an hour for my, my veterinary consult or seeing a doctor. I'm like, a guy rode his donkey through the snow for a day to come see a vet because his daughter was probably going to die of infection from, from from burns, um, you know, and, and they didn't complain at all. So, yeah, that was a yeah, that was a yeah. There, we I had another one when we were playing the uh, headless goat polo in Afghanistan. A guy came off his horse, like javelin into the ground, smashed his nose across his face, and uh, yeah, so I got him to bite onto a stick. I was like, right, I'm going to get some gloves on. You bite onto this stick like you've never bit onto something before, and just clicked his nose in, like just Ooh. literally sounded like you're snapping a carrot. Anyway, this guy's just like going wide in the face. And, uh, anyway, and then we stitched it, you know, some of the no, all his, you know, cause he'd split all his face open. We stitched it up and put a bit of a bandage over his face and a couple of Nurofen and off he went home. And I was just like, Oh man, like, wow. If ever I feel big in the britches and I'm the, you know, I feel like I'm six foot tall and bulletproof. I'm like, man, I've, I've got nothing on these guys. Yeah. They're, they're seriously hardcore. So. Yeah, I left uh, Afghanistan a, a wiser young man um, and then I found myself on a plane from Dushanbe to uh, Johannesburg and that's where my next chapter of uh, being a vet transpired, of being a, a wildlife vet in, um, yeah, in Africa. I get what you're saying about the Mongol Derby being that a pivotal moment and I think if you're lucky enough to have one of those experiences in life, it's like once you have it, you can't go back. Like once you've seen a different way or had that experience, like you can't go back to life as it was before. But while that might be a big one that stands out in your mind, it sounds like that experience with that little girl uh, in Afghanistan is just another one of those things that you just can't, like you can't look at the world the same way again. Yeah, it was a great great, uh, lesson of, yeah, privilege and just like, you know, 
It's like telling a, a well frog about the outside world. All they know is what's in the well, um, you know, which is something that uh, we've all got to be wary of that we can get stuck in our ways. And, um, yeah, you know, like as I said, you hear someone complaining like, oh, you know, I had to wait knee deep for four hours. You're like, well, this dude and his little girl rode across Afghanistan through a blizzard for a day to come see a vet to get some pretty shoddy treatment for third-degree burns to her arm and bodies. So, yeah, like. If ever I'm carrying on, I'll just go, I remember the little girl in Afghanistan or the guy that bit in the stick while I smacked his nose back into his skull. Uh, Sorry, cracked. Cracked his nose back into his skull, yeah. (laughs) Sounds a little violent there. Yeah. So after this you go to Africa. Gosh, Cozzy. Sorry. Rough on gear. Yes. You're fired. Um, So, yeah, so you were saying before that you're going to Africa. Yeah, so then I found myself uh, after Afghan, uh, had a short stopover in Istanbul. Um, yeah, it was pretty crook. That was my, uh, I think that was my second dose of Giardia. So, yeah, great for um, getting that summer body. Yeah, it's just like excruciatingly ill. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It is a detox tea when you can You'll just struggle go. to look at chicken korma the same way ever again. But, uh, yeah, it's a bit how you're going. So I remember, yeah, sort of just, yeah, coming out of um, – yeah, sitting a bit shell shocked in uh, Istanbul, and then jumped on a plane, and uh, yeah, my next career, uh, segment uh, of my veterinary career as a wildlife vet uh, transpired in the uh, high field of South Africa. So, does this mean that you were like working with elephants and tigers and lions? And wait, do you get tigers in Africa, or is it just lions? Just lions. Where do you get tigers? Oh no, they're Asia, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, okay, yeah, close enough. No worries. Um, Actually, no, they're not close at all. They're different continents, so that's okay. So, yeah, so what were the – or or was it still, I guess, although in, in South Africa there's still dogs and cats and horses and cows and all the regular animals, so – but you did just say wildlife, so I've probably just answered my own question. Yeah, no, uh, there's still the mixed practice uh, in South Africa, but I didn't go all the way to South Africa to spare a cat. I felt like I'd done plenty of those. So, no, we found ourselves in the high felt. So what's the high felt? It's the area of high altitude north of uh, – uh, Johannesburg and um, Pretoria. You go after Brits, Tuba Zimbia, as you're heading towards the Zimbabwean and Botswana border. Uh, that's a high felt. Literally, if you've been to northern Queensland, uh, it's exactly the same. Same uh, latitude, uh, same species of grass, similar uh, climates. Um, the only thing is they have kudus, nyalas, uh, elephants and rhinos. Um, so, yeah, that was our job was fly around a chopper and shoot darts at them. Cool. So I knew um, two of those four animals, so I'm feeling like I'm on a pretty good roll here. What a dick. Yeah, pretty much. No, all the rest are just little like antelope species of Africa. So, um, yeah, during that time there was a massive boom in conservation. Like people would have farms. So rather than running cattle, you would run Niala antelope or kudus, you know, and that was for safari or trophy animals or, or breeding for both. So... Um, you know, say you and I were going to have a transaction and I was like, hey, Steph, I want uh, 10 giraffe and I hear you've got some up for sale. Yeah, no worries. You'd agree on your price, blah, 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 blah. Then they'd call us and we and they'd be like, well, we've got 10 giraffe to move. They don't really like just getting on a horse float and walking around. So, you know, we'd go in there with a dart gun and go and uh, put them on a trailer. It's kind of like there's a great photo. Oh, we had to show you the photo of me driving with a horse float on the back and the little giraffe heads <laughs> sticking out of the top with their little blindfolds and uh, – Neophiles on there, so it was something very reminiscent of um, the Hangover. Yeah, yeah, that scene there. <laughs> was that the bulk of what you did though? Because 
not to sound, I don't know how to sound, say this without sounding sassy and obnoxious, but it's not like you go to uni for five, six years to just shoot a dart gun. Like I feel like any old mate can probably, and I'm sure there were plenty of people in Africa shooting dart guns that weren't vets either. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like that's what, that was the oxymoron I always found pretty interesting was like, I couldn't, you know, just go and shoot a firearm, but anyone could kind of go and get a dart gun, you know, like a firearm kind of got to shoot you in the heart of the head and I'll kill you. If I shoot some metamorphine into your arm with a dart, you're screwed. And if I spray it in your eyes, you're dead. So, yeah, it was kind of like we could walk around a shopping mall with a dart gun. No one really gave a shit. So, yeah, it was pretty pretty fun. But it was more anyone had access to the dart gun, it was more the veterinary privilege to get the darts. And it was Africa, so, like, you did what you want anyway. So, yeah. you know, I got done for speeding plenty of times. You're like, g'day, boys, how are you going? So it looks like someone's very, very hungry. So you drive down to the local KFC, buy them a bucket, and job was done. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry to all the South African police officers out there listening. So great mob, great mob. So, um, yeah, no, it was sort of a, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it was just a country where you sort of made up your own rules. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of conservation, but the big thing that we were doing was a bit of rhino, uh, uh, conservation because as it was sort of well publicized, there was a lot of rhino, uh, poaching getting done. So we'd go and, Secretly try and dart them, move them, cut the horns because the horn grows like a uh, um, like a fingernail. Like you can mm. cut it and it still grows back. Look, it doesn't look great because there's these you know little stumpy rhinos running around rather than the natural ones. But it was kind of like you know it was a less incentive for them to be poached um, if there wasn't as much horn there. But you know it, we were kind of peeing in the ocean at that stage. The the poachers were finding ways to. Um, you know, find the rhinos anyway, or they'd shoot them out of spot. You know, I've been tracking a rhino for three days. It doesn't have a horn. Bang, I'll shoot it so I don't make that mistake twice and track something that actually has oh. a return on investment. So, you know, we witnessed some of the farm murders. Like, Africa's a beautiful place. Don't get me wrong. I love it. Um, you know, it was weirdly a place that I wasn't born in, but it felt like home. Uh, but yeah, we sort of brush shoulders with, you know, some of the farm murders and things that went on and, you know, just some of the dysfunction. And once again, as a young person, you're like, oh shit, Australia's not so bad. So like I can walk down the street at night and there's a good chance that I'm not going to get, you know, shot. Unless you're in Alice Springs. <laughs> yeah, true. Or Townsville or, or Charterstairs represent. Um, but yeah, no, like, uh, or someone breaks into your house. Yeah. They take your wallet here. They were like, I will shoot your entire family. So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a, you know, just a great little journey as a, as a young little vet in, in Africa. How do you keep picking these places to end up in that are so politically unstable, unstable? Sorry. The insta- political instability, um, is just off the chart. So first of all, you're like, Oh, I'm just trekking through Afghanistan. Like, in the mountains or whatever, which I don't know if the Taliban are in like one area or if they're kind of spread out all over the joint, but you know, yeah, around the place. And then you're in South There's Africa. There's a lot of opium in those areas and a lot of Russians that weren't in, were a long way from Russia. Yeah. 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 And then you've I'm got. I'm a sucker for dysfunction. Then you've got South Africa <laughs> and there's, there's poachers and there's all that kind of drama and danger there. But as you said, you know, I had, had connections to people that had been uh, like victims of, of the other crimes going mm. on there. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It, like, the chances there, definitely. But, you know, statistically, what's most likely going to kill me today and tomorrow is driving my car. So, it's all in perspective. It's like everyone that's ever going to go and fly with me in my aeroplane, like, oh, yeah, I'm not going flying with you. I might have a crash. It's like, actually, statistically, what's most likely going to kill us is the drive to the airport or sitting under a coconut tree and getting hit by a coconut. So, 
like, you know, those things exist and I, I don't know, kind of just it's the gift of perspective because you see it from a distance, you know it's there and you're just like, well, if I'm going to carry on and be a brat uh, back in Australia, you know, I just remember those little things and like, eh, actually, I'm, I'm not doing too badly. So how do you want, and I'm guessing you've got the bug by now, although God knows you would have had so many bugs at that point in time, um, especially, <laughs> yes. yeah, best way to shred. Um, yes. So you have these experiences. Where to from there? Like how do you beat that? Or or like you said with the Mongol Derby and the people that got the Mongol Derby blues mm. and, you know, like they're chasing that next high and trying to f- get, find that feeling again. I feel like your experiences are kind of like that as well. Like you're having all these incredible experiences. How do you decide what to do next and what did happen after you finished up in Africa? Oh, Africa. Um, oh, I went and gate crashed a heap of weddings around Ireland for a month and a bit. Um Ran out of money and was like, shit, I better go back and work. So, um, I went back to Australia and worked sort of, um, Department of Ag, Department of, uh, Trade, going abroad and building farms and, you know, involved in livestock movements and stuff like this. Um, so, sorry, don't skimp on the details where, where at? Which places? Yeah. Um, so we did some farms in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Philippines, uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, um, Israel, uh, Jordan. Um, we were going to go to Georgia, but then the Russians played ball, so we ended up going to going to Russia. So I feel like it might be quicker if you just give me a list of the countries you haven't been to, versus going through all the ones that you have been to. Um, I haven't been to Tajikistan yet. Yeah, there you go. Because okay. they only give out seventy-two hour visas, and it's real bugger to get them. But the the president there's changed the days of the week to his name. Oh, really? There's an amusement park in his honour. Like, this place is, like, weird as shit and I can't wait to get there. Yeah, there's a place called the Portal to Hell, right, and I want to go there. My friends have all been there um, where, yeah, the KGB were drilling for oil. They had an explosion. There's all this gas going everywhere. And the chief engineer was like, ah, look, you know, we're killing the villagers with all this gas. Just flick a durry in it and we'll burn it off in a couple of days and continue. It's burnt for 40 days. Ah, sorry, for 40 years. It's just, (laughs) like, fire coming out of the dirt. So I'll get there. But, um yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, kept doing that and then did the Kazakhstan thing and that. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's something that I've got to be aware of that's just like, you know, what's next? What's next? Um, yeah, you know, sooner or later just pulling up and just going, ah, enough's enough. So it can yeah. be a slippery slope, I guess. It can be, um, definitely. Definitely can understand what you're saying there. Mm. I feel like I've had uh, similar experiences. When did the flying come into your work as a vet? Uh, well, I started learning to fly eight years ago, um, but I never finished. So I never really, yeah, like legally I couldn't fly. Um, COVID came around. Uh, my father had an accident on the cattle station and, and uh, unfortunately got killed uh, flying. Uh, sorry, uh, got killed uh, mustering uh, cattle. And uh, I remember selling his plane. And I was like, ah, geez, if only I had my license, I would have kept a hold of it. And um, and uh, and then sort of COVID came around and I was like, well, I'm stuck. Um in a town right near a, a flight school. Weirdly enough, a flight school I used to go with my dad when I was a little kid uh, uh, near Gympie. And I was like, yeah, I'll start to learn. So I smashed out a license in about eight weeks. So, yeah, got a license, chuffed off to, um, to Arnhem Land, uh, did a lot of, like, Indigenous community work there as a vet and continued doing it. And, uh, yeah, it, it, flying had always been a part of the bush and being on a station, you know, my father flew, both my grandparents flew, um, sort of it was part and parcel of uh, of the postcode of 4820. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, it's it's really become a dominant part of my life probably, yeah, the last three years. I didn't realise that you'd only been flying for three years. I thought you'd been flying for much longer. Oh, <laughs> uh, the art of bullshitting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that is now noted. I will be yeah. requiring to know how many hours you have before I ever set foot in a plane with you. I have about four or five hundred somewhere there. So. Oh, yeah, no, that's nowhere yeah. near enough. <laughs> no, okay. no, smashing it out, 100%. I could play for Qantas. Yeah. Um, Me as pilot. So... <laughs> was it um was it COVID that kind of pulled you up from going overseas for a minute then? Because I I just feel like that kind of is like the perfect storm that you can't really be going overseas during that time. No. But knowing you and you're so used to being so autonomous, going where you want, when you want, flying everywhere, not necessarily flying yourself. Mm. So you're like, well, and then same within Australia, the flights are so restricted, travel is restricted. Well, you're like, well, I'll just get a license and get a plane and. Oh, yeah, no. And got to keep moving. And you just have done it locally rather than overseas. Yeah, no, it was a massive thing. Um, you know, and a lot of my friends and, you know, family, I guess I'd call them, you know, not blood family, uh, were, were abroad. And yeah, getting that severed off. It, yeah, it was a weird isolating time. So when COVID kicked off, I was riding a horse across Patagonia. We'd been cut off from the outside world for about two or three weeks. And I remember riding into, into a town at the end of it and all the Argies going, Hey, mate, what are you doing? You better get home. Like, the world's shitting the bed big time. Uh, so yeah, I got the last flight from, uh, uh, I flew Bariloche to Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires was like something out of a zombie like film. There was like, you know, police outside barricading the doors and like people like trying to get into the airport. Um, inside there was just like people losing their shit trying to get on flights. It just, you know, I remember I've filmed a screen somewhere and literally every flight was flashing red, just going, uh, cancelled except for mine. Mine was the only one going to, but the problem was I was like, I was leaving Argentina where I had, uh, you know, friends and, and, um, you know, places I could stay. I had to stop over in Santiago de Chile and then fly to Sydney. And I was like, shit, I'll get stuck in no man's land in some airport. And yeah, I remember landing there. It was just weird to be in these massive places that only, you know, months prior had been crawling with people that were just, a wasteland. So I remember going in this little souvenir shop and the sign like pending for Sydney was just sitting there and there was like guards there with guns and they're like, do not come towards the desk. The Australian government, there was like, it was like something out of, you know, the Cuban missile crisis. This telephone was on a, was on a check-in desk and like, that will ring when the Australians say that you can come. So I was like, right. I, I met this other Aussie guy. So we chopped off into the little convenience store, guy selling like magnets and postcards and beers. And um he's just like, oh, well, my business is rooted. So we just got stuck into the piss in this little like convenience store. He's like, you want a magnet? And I was like, sure, <laughs> sure. So we drank all these beers and then this little phone, I shit you not, like, you know, lit up and started ringing and this lady's like, si, 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 bueno, comprende, boom. I was like, you know, the flight to Sydney is now boarding and, uh, you know, can we please get this line for like 60 to 35 boarding? Thank you. And we're on. And the funniest thing that I remember that someone had just like, like it was this great thing to see, just no one gave a shit anymore. Like, you know, there was, yeah, it was just sort of, yeah, this apocalyptic world we were sort of experiencing. And I remember someone had just plugged their iPod into um, <laughs> into Chile's biggest international airport in, in their capital city. And um, Eminem... Uh, Forgot about Dre, just wrapped the entire time as I got on a flight. You know, there's all these old boomers and stuff like losing, like crying and like, shit, we're getting home. I can't believe it. I thought we were stuck. 
And yeah, I just remember walking down uh, the Aero Bridge on this plane, pissed out of my tree, and just Eminem and Dr. Dre just spitting bars of fire from <laughs> 1993. Yeah, yeah, I was like, wow, this is really nostalgic from boarding school in Charters Towers. And um, yeah, it's just such a, yeah, I don't know, it was just so surreal. I was just like, I don't know. Yeah, everyone's like, were well, you worried you weren't going to get back? I was like, oh, well, I'm just sleeping in an airport for a bit. I don't know, I'll work it out. Remember the girl in Afghanistan? I'm doing a lot better than her. Yeah, yep. So, so yeah. So, so had you been practising overseas more or less pretty much up until COVID? Like once you went over, you kind of... I do locums, then I work overseas, then I come back to Australia and make money. Like I just had a storage unit with all my stuff and I'd slowly fill it up with more souvenirs from which country I went to. I was like, nah, don't need any, don't need anyone, don't need a dog, don't need a house. I've just got a duffel bag and a swag. I just used to ramble. And then, yeah, obviously COVID, it all came to a bit of a halt. But somehow you still managed to find a way to get out of that spot (laughs) that everybody else is trapped in the spot. Yeah. And you're like, nah. So you got a place and now – can you explain, in case people haven't listened to your other episode, which okay. if they've gotten this far into it, I'm, I'm just, sorry. The, earlier on, I'm going to have to put a, 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 a like a, a, what do you call it, thing in at the beginning to be like, listen to the other one first because you've mentioned um, headless goat polo like twice now. Yes, and if they yes. haven't listened to the other episode, there's going to be a lot of confused people out or there. Or watch, yeah, go onto YouTube no, and watch not, Rambo no. 3. Uh, they play Buskashi and Rambo. No, I just don't. Yeah, nobody, like, nobody needs – listen yeah, okay, to positive explanation first, then if you game, YouTube it, but definitely don't blindly YouTube it. Okay. Um, <laughs> You're no fun. Just the idea of it makes me like, ooh. Um, oh, it's foul. <laughs> so bad. Oh, do you know what you get when you win a game of Buskashi? The winner gets the body of the gut and it's all like stretched out and, and, yeah, and, and then you have a big old feed. Yep. 100%. I would be, probably be pretty tender though, I guess. 100%, yeah. That's the, the gravity of the first prize. Yeah, I was Nothing, glad that I never definitely won. Definitely not going to be MSA graded. <sighs> probably not, no. no. Oh, my God. Um, um, so you get your – so sorry, yeah, can you explain to people um, what your job is now and I guess what you've been doing since COVID? So since uh, COVID um, – And the plane. And the plane and learning to fly. So now I have a mortgage, I have a plane and I've got a dog. So, <laughs> um, and I uh, are flying locum and offering veterinary services um, to, you know, isolated areas uh, of Australia and just helping out clinics that can't get vets and, you know, the, and and – you know, that's something that I've gone on television to try and address prior, you know, uh, the veterinary crisis that we're, we're currently seeing. So, you know, uh, rife with, uh, suicide and people leaving the profession in, in drones. So, um, yeah, just trying to get around to clinics and help them out and help the vets out that are sticking it out and, and getting flogged. So, um, yeah, sort of, I don't know what, what after that, uh, maybe dabbling philanthropy and, um, uh, you know, start up something with those fancy pricks that, you know, have all that funding and fly all their bloody doctors and stuff around in aeroplanes. Yeah, try and, try and, uh, you know, get some real clinicians out in the bush in their aeroplanes rather than those bloody human doctors and nurses, you know. <laughs> They're a bit gammon. Oh, you can tell you've been in the territory for way too long. <laughs> no, that's a Northern Queensland word. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, I think it was that gammon word too. Yeah. And so for anyone who, who hasn't listened to the other episode, a locum is like the equivalent, the veterinary equivalent of a relief teacher, like yeah. a fill-in. Yeah. Yeah. So you're filling in for people yep. and you're flying yourself around yep. across the country. Yeah, you can fly to stations, little towns, indigenous communities, yeah, anywhere and just, yeah, load up all the gear in the back and my dog and my clothes and off we go and go do our job. So COVID is more or less kind of, it's really 
slowing down and, um, you know, restrictions have been lifting for a while now. Borders are open. A lot of international borders are open. How, I, I guess, COVID for a lot of people forced a lot of people to slow down. Mm. Not, not you so much. Like, yes, you came out of it with a house and a dog, which is definitely slowing down for you, but yes. you also managed to probably do more travel in those few years than the rest of Australia combined. Um, what, how do you, now that borders are opening up, like you've kind of got this business and it's going well in Australia, but you're always kind of getting pulled back overseas. So what do you think is going to happen now? I, I truly don't know. It's, it, it is a interesting conundrum to be faced with, you know, like I went to a locum in Dubbo uh, a couple of months ago, you know, which like if you're in Queensland, Northern Territory, WA, there was no way you'd want to go to New South Wales. That was like a leper state, you know. It still you were there. Is, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, the only good thing about New South Wales is it separates Queensland from Victoria, you know. We've talked about this. So, and you know, it gives us a footy team to flog three times a year. But, um, you know, like that alone was kind of like, Oh, this is weird. I'm going to New South Wales and then getting out. Like that was unthinkable in 2020 and 2021. Like, you know, I needed a good excuse to go to Sydney in the first place. And now I needed an even bigger one to go into New South Wales. And, you know, that happened. And then, you know, I just got back from, uh, Borneo and, uh, Malaysia two and a half weeks ago, you know, and, um, yeah, you know, we've got, uh, Mongolia coming up in a month, uh, you know, Argentina, um, you know, stuff with international trade and agriculture, um, you know, by security threats. We've got foot and mouth just sitting up in Indonesia at the moment, which is of great uh, concern. And, you know, there's a chance that they might start calling us up there to, to help the local uh, local vets mount a response, um, and Papua Guinea, uh, Papua New Guinea as well with uh, African swine fever and, and and FMD as well. So, I I I think COVID's been great that it's made me rekindle um, my romance with uh, with the bush and where I've come from, um, especially after losing my dad. You know, uh, retouching uh, with my identity as someone from the bush. Um, yeah, and I don't know if I want to leave like I used to. I think I actually have something to come back to now in Australia and stick around. It doesn't mean that I won't be pulling my passport out and using it, but I might not be just spending, you know, six months abroad in some crappy little hostel and, uh, you know, being so, um, ambulatory, you know, uh, yeah, having a little, having a little house and, and a dog would be great. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm on a bit of a mission not only to offer veterinary services to isolated areas, but, you know, to continue my um, quest on advocacy for our uh, for our uh, profession because, you know, uh, my family went through a tragic accident uh, when my father got killed and, you know, just horrible loss and grieving. Um, you know, it, it, it upsets me that there's a family um, every 12 weeks that goes through that just because, you know, their loved one was a vet and we are doing a bad job at looking after them. So, yeah, that's sort of where my uh, my passion is and, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it, you know, being a martyr. I feel like this episode is something, you know, if people couldn't tell from listening to your voice and we hadn't given them any other information that we had in the episode, that you could be like an 80-year-old person reflecting back on your life, not like in your <laughs> early to mid-30s. Have you heard me complain? Yeah, like an old man already. Yeah, you are. Um, but... Like there's, we've just covered so much and even then we've barely taken the skin off. But in such a short period of time, think, to think that you started out working on dairy farms in Mexico and by Mexico, I mean Victoria. Um, I've done dairy work in Mexico. Oh, well, there you go. Um, you know, and, and you were, I guess, on track to just have that kind of regular stable career. You have this one really like pivotal 
moment and it's all just kind of snowballed from there. But to the point where now you're you're in your early to mid thirties, you have your own business, you're flying around the it sounds like I'm such a suck up right now. No, Don't no, worry, this I can I can attest there's plenty of things not great about this guy, everyone. Um <laughs> <laughs> Great Facebook podcast. Yeah. yeah. He's a shit listener. Oh god. Um He wears his socks on the lawn. Oh, do you? No, I don't. Oh, I'm okay. not that kind of heathen. Jesus Jeez, Christ. Yeah. There's um, some standards. But, but even just the type and it, and, but all the things like just the, the breadth and depth of the experiences, like you've basically tried your hand at almost like everything in vet, veterinary science. And to think that you're in a position now where you could be working on like national biosecurity programs and stuff and doing all these things, which I feel like is something that you, regular people it takes decades and decades and decades to kind of build up to and it's like the long-term you know pipe dream and you've just kind of smashed this all out in a decade yeah it, look it's been condensed in a, a short period of time but i don't know i think that's it 90 percent of it's showing up yeah yeah like you sit this and do that and yada yada i do believe that yeah just turning up and getting it done and look you know don't get me wrong there's a lot of privilege that i've had over a lot of other people with my upbringings and you know my upbrings and what I got born into, um, you know, that other people would, you know, I got a, I got a head start in the foot race, but, you know, I think that's the, that's the biggest message I give to, to any veterinary students or young people that are wanting to pursue any kind of career or even someone that's middle aged or older that wants to, you know, have a sea change is, you know, yeah, 80% is turning up, you know, just, just have a crack. Yeah. The, you know, because, uh, one day there might not be any more time left and you can't do it then. Yeah. You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. I like that. I think that's why I enjoy hanging out with you so much because I feel like there's a lot of similarities there uh, in terms of that idea of like just just ask. If the opportunity isn't there, just ask for it or just say yes or just be open to it, you know, all these kind of things where I feel like a lot of the stuff I've done has all kind of come about in the same way. Yeah. Can't yeah. say I've got like this, you know, that I can legally – surgery on animals around the world and he said i can <laughs> <laughs> oh good lord uh, uh, says the guy who's yeah. operated on his own dog today <laughs> yeah 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 actually yeah one of the hardest things i've ever done is taking an orthopedic plate out of my dog's previously broken foot yeah that was that was something else yeah i was like oh my god well i think the discussion on opportunities for vets and just i guess vets in the, the profession um is probably another episode in and of itself that we can do if I can like pin you yes. down next week. Um, <laughs> no because that's, I can just feel like that. Yeah. There's a lot to, to fit in there. I just want to ask you a few rapid fire questions, I guess, Go to round it. out this. Yes. Um, again, so much has happened, but really we've barely scratched the surface. What did I say before? I think we've barely taken the skin off. Yeah. I was like, is that the right expression? No, like, in surgery it is, yeah. Okay, cool. I prefer scratch the surface because the yes. other one just is, yeah, a bit graphic. No, no. So of all the places you've been, what has given you, or not just places, I guess of all the, all the experiences as a veterinarian, and I want to say like specifically experiences where you're working as a vet with animals, what has made your heart race the most? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, there's so many. There's so many. Um, um, I remember, 
I, I work at a little dog sled race in Alaska called the Iditarod and we're flying vets. And I remember like flying around doing some bush flying across the Yukon River and it was flo- frozen rock solid. We had a heap of dogs in the back that uh, needed to be medevac to a, a makeshift veterinary, you know, emergency center that we'd made in an aircraft hangar. But we also doubled up. We, I remember one of the pilots saying, right, mate, we've got to throw all the dogs in the back. But another plane has landed where we're going and they, they smashed a massive rock into their prop. And I remember like, Quickly putting the dogs in the plane, running over. We cannibalized a prop of a crash plane at the end of a runway um, in Nikolai, Alaska, threw it in the back of the plane and then flew to Galena and slept in an old air base with all these dogs barking and, you know, on on their IV drips and putting a prop on a plane because the other one was totally obliterated. I remember that was definitely like a bit of a hard skip moment, just a lot going on and just like, wow, like, you know, this is life's pretty good, yeah. Now, as... A vet. Um, yes, you spend a lot of years at school. There's a lot of training, but obviously you keep learning on the job. Yes. And I know you have made mistakes along the way. Yes. What's a mistake that you made that was obviously, I guess they're all pretty hard at the time, but in hindsight has been like the greatest lesson for you? Um, what's been the greatest mistake that I have made? Um, God, you put me on the spot here. Or just a general mistake. Oh. Like, did you ever go to an either side of the dog and accidentally give it a green <laughs> dream instead? Like, <laughs> Oh, have I committed uh, vicious malpractice? Oh, um, yeah, maybe maybe don't no, dog no, yourself no, in on anything. No, 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 no. I've been really lucky in that regard. Um, or gone to, got, got dogs mixed up and castrated the wrong dog or something. Uh, no, no. Prank tested um, a steer. Yeah, I've done that at the odd time. I wouldn't say that's the worst. Um <laughs> Oh God, let me think. I actually, while you're thinking of that, I, uh, um, my American dad tells me a funny story that one time, um, I think it was a friend of his and they had all their cattle being preg tested and they didn't really agree with the number the vet gave and like, Oh, we'll run them back through. I think like, and then, you know, check them again. And just to, just to test on how good the vet was, they put a few steers in there mm, just to see mm. if he would actually go in and, and realise before, but he picked up before he put his arm in that it was a steer, not a heifer. So. Yeah. yeah, no, I've definitely done that a few times. I don't know, like there wouldn't be a case where I was like, you know, like, you know, it's like flying an aeroplane or doing surgery. You can always do better. Mm. Like you will nail a job and you're like, oh, I'd change this, I'd change that, you know, to, maybe that's part of our personality. Is there personality. a case that haunts you? Uh, That's a bit traumatic, but. Yeah, I don't know if it's a case. There was definitely, actually, it was my last case before I finished my job, uh, before going to Afghanistan. I'll never forget it. Um, there was this lady and she had Alzheimer's and, um, Alzheimer's, sorry. And, and, and she couldn't remember, like, we'd be talking a consult and she couldn't remember the answer that she'd given me 30, 60 seconds prior. But, you know, to boil it down, this dog was in for euthanasia. Both its eyes were crook. It had diabetes. It had cancer. Like, this thing was clapped out, a little white fluffy. It was 15 years old. Like, it was it was at the end of its tether. She couldn't remember anything. Like, I kept asking, and her care was in. She's like, look, she doesn't know anything. She knew exactly um, why the dog, uh, uh, who the dog was, and that her um, husband had bought it for her. Obviously, her husband was passed. That, with absolute clarity, she could give me the answer. Be going, you know, oh, I don't want anything happening to this dog because this is the last connection with my husband uh, that's passed. And he passed 18 months ago. She could nail that but couldn't remember 30, 30 seconds, you know, like it was losing the marbles so that she remembered. And we had to euthanize the dog. That was the end of it. And she cried. She knew she she could grapple with like her head was was soup. 
you know, without sounding condescending or, or derogatory. But yeah, it was amazing to see that, you know, that strong emotional connection and, and though there were some neurons in the brain and in the, in the memory center that could remember that. And that was what, like, that was nine years ago. And I'll, ne- I remember just going, this is why I'm going to Afghanistan. I'm done with mixed practice for a while. And yeah, it was just, yeah, it was something that sort of just, yeah, it was, it was a weird thing. Like it needed to happen, but you know, I, I finished the last connection this lady had to a husband and, you know, maybe the last memory that, you know, sparked those last couple of little, you know, brain connections in there to, uh, to, you know, to such, you know, the last 60 years of a life. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was pretty big as a 24 year old vet to, to have to, you know, dance around. Well, hopefully the last question <laughs> brings out a bit more of a happier memory. <laughs> yeah. Um, of all the cases and experiences, what's been the most rewarding? What's well, been the most rewarding? I know hiding some rhinos over in Africa for getting poached was pretty good. Um, you know, uh, treating some horses in Mongolia has been great. Um, I don't know if it's been a case, but I always enjoy um, doing an emergency cesarean on a dog. Um, you know, she's had a couple of pups and she's got into trouble. And I really like it when you're in bush practice because often the, the family come in and bring the dog with them. You don't have a nurse, so you're just like, righto, Mother of three children, you're now my nurse and you're going to run the anaesthetics machine. Please don't deregister me, anyone that's living it. It's how we get away with it in the bush, um, you know, because we just don't have the human resources. So, you know, you, you're running the anaesthetic, you're doing the surgery and, and the kids are there with you. And, um, you know, even if you do have nurses, it's like all hands on deck and literally you're cutting these little puppies out and you you cut off their card and you wrap them in a towel and, you know, you give it to these little kids and you're like, righto, mate, you've got to, like, rub this little puppy and stimulate it to, like, take its first breath, you know. It's like a really cold start, you know, of, a, of an old cubota, cubota pump and it's like the choke's on and she's coughing and spluttering and you're just giving that thing the, the hit of life. And, yeah, watching these little kids that are just, like, rubbing these little puppies and then it makes those little squeaks and, it, you know, this, this thing comes to life in their hands and... You know, that's a massive thing for a little kid. And then they look at you and they're like, you know, you hear them, they're like, oh, my God, I want to be a vet, yada, yada. And, yeah, that's something that, you know, sometimes you're like, hey, kid, I've got to tell you some yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't become a vet. But, you know, it's a good reminder for myself to be like, you know, take all the remuneration away, take all the other bull crap out of it, take all, you know, the sad and sorry statistics in the profession that I think we can change and we are starting to see change and we've got to continue sending home a message strong. Um, but, yeah, you know, when it all boils down to it, you know, what, what an ambition ability you know what an amazing gift to go like i get paid to do that you know we saved that puppy's life and some little kid was just like this is the greatest thing i've ever seen in my life yep that is the that is by far my favorite thing to do and that is a much happier story a hundred percent all centered around human connection i did lie to you but you would know this from having listened to most of the episodes on the podcast right yes right yes yes Yes. um (laughs) Final question. Yeah. Looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Um, don't wallow in banality and turn up. 80% of it is turning up. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, just, um, you know, there's six ways till Sunday that, you know, life will try and talk you out of something or screw you over. You've just got to persevere and get it. And, you know, human beings, we've got thumbs and, you know, incredible, you know, cranial capacity and the ability to adapt. We can achieve anything. And, you know, you really, really can do whatever you want.